You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's just continue here in an attitude of prayer. I just want to echo Eric's prayer. Father, thank you for this moment. As we now look at your word, we, we confess that we have great confidence in your word and in your power to accomplish what you will through it. And so we ask now toward that end, give us minds and hearts and imaginations to receive what you have for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, look, I want to start uh, by, by making an announcement this morning. I, I want to announce that I have retired my dream of ever playing Major League Baseball. Why are you laughing? Look, I, I don't know that I ever had a chance really to play Major League Baseball, but I, I've had a dream to play Major League Baseball. And the older that I've gotten, I think you could say the dream has morphed into something of a fantasy because I have continued to think for a long time now that it's still possible for me to, to break my arm and through some type of medical mystery. After it healed, I could throw like 130 miles an hour, okay? Um, I've seen it happen before, okay? That's true story there. And so I thought maybe that could happen to me. Maybe something like that could take place. But I, I have resigned that fantasy now. I'm not thinking that anymore. From now on, anytime my mind begins to wander in that direction, I'm going to stop and be content to be a spectator. A spectator. I am merely a sports onlooker now. I'm a witness, along with some 40 to 60,000 other witnesses who might pack out a Target field or a U.S. Bank stadium. Now, those of you who are, sport, who are sports fans, you, you know what, you can imagine what I'm talking about here. You've, you've been there. You've been in a packed out stadium before. But if you've never been to a game at all, that's okay. Like, you can still imagine what this is like. You, you can imagine uh, what a crowded stadium is like. Um, just, just imagine lots of people kind of like this, lots of people standing shoulder to so- shoulder in a big rectangle or a big circle, and they're all watching something, Okay. Now, that, that image is where the writer of Hebrews takes us here in Hebrews 12. And, and that image is all meant to set up one main action that we're called to do in two different ways. And what I want to do for the sermon, I just simply want to show you this in the text. I'm going to give you three points of exhortation from the three verbs that we find here in verses 1 into. I'm going to tell you what they are. Pretty simple here. First, let us run with endurance. Second, lay aside what gets in the way. And then third, look to Jesus. Three things. Let us run, lay aside, look to Jesus. Okay? This is where we're going, these three things. Before we get there, I want to spend some more time on this image, on the, the context here in verse 1. Um, look, look, look at Hebrews 12, verse 1, and, and read it with me quietly if, if you can. Here it is. Therefore, 
important. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, then this is what we do, right? Now, something you've probably seen in Hebrews before, we've seen this throughout the series, is that oftentimes there's a back and forth between doctrinal explanation and exhortation. So the writer, what he'll do is he'll explain the realities of the gospel. He'll, he'll talk about what Jesus has done, and then based upon that, he'll then tell us what to do. So think back to the middle of chapter 10. You, you might remember we talked about how the writer in chapter 10 focuses on what we have as Christians. He, he states what we have, and then he says, based upon what we have, we do X, Y, and Z. He does this actually two times, two significant times in chapter 4 and in chapter 10. He says that we have a great high priest. We have authorization to enter into the most holy place. And we're here in chapter 12, he tells us about one more thing that we have. So we can just add this to the list. We have a great cloud of witnesses. And this is straightforward in verse 1. We can see this here. We can see that this great cloud of witnesses is what the exhortation is built upon. Therefore, since, because we are surrounded by these cloud of witnesses, or literally, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, then this is what we do. And I think we can see here that this is meant to encourage us. If the exhortation is built upon this reality, this reality is meant to encourage us. But what does it mean? I, what, what, what is the great cloud of witnesses here? I just want to say that um, we're just doing two verses today. There's so much we could say about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, I'm not going to be able to say everything, right? But what I, I do want to spend a lot of time on this image in verse 1. Because all of chapter 11, which we've looked at now for four weeks, all of chapter 11 has been building up to this image in 12 verse 1. All right, so, so I want you to, to hang with me here and, and get ready to, to think, all right? I need you to, to use your imaginations here. All right? in, in ancient Greek, that word there for cloud was a common word to describe a big cloud of, a, a big crowd of people. So the word cloud is this idea of a bunch of people all together. And so, we know in verse 1 that the writer employs a sports metaphor when he tells us to run with endurance. But I want you to see that the writer actually starts this whole thing with a sports metaphor because he starts here with this image of, of a packed out sports stadium. That's, that's what he's trying to, to help us to imagine here. And, and just a side note, I'm, I'm going to say the word sports a lot in the sermon, okay? Just following the text, I think. But I just want to say, one of the reasons that I, I believe, one of the reasons God invented sports, or, or, or one of the reasons that God put it in humans to invent sports was for the sake of our ability to understand the truths in these verses, okay? Believe that, all right? So imagine, if, if you can here, a packed out stadium. And I, I, say, I say think sports. I guess it could be a Taylor Swift concert if you want to think that, okay? But, 
Just imagine a packed out stadium, all right? Everybody is together watching something. I was, uh, a few weeks ago, I got to go to the last two Twins games of the, of the season in the playoffs. And it was sold out crowd. Everybody's standing. I mean, it was, it was electric, okay? Didn't last long, all right? It was short. But it was amazing, you know, be, being, being there. So it just, just imagine what it's like if, if you've been there. If you're in this big stadium or a big arena, think back to an experience like that. We're all standing shoulder to shoulder, and you're all together with people maybe you don't know, but you're all united watching this thing that's happening down on the field. Well, the writer wants us to, to go there in our minds, and he wants us to know that this stadium full of people is a stadium full of saints of the saints that he's just described in chapter 11. He calls them witnesses, a cloud of witnesses here. And, and this, this could mean a couple of different things. On one hand, these people are witnesses because they have testified to the faithfulness of God in their lives. They've endured in faith. They, they, they've, they didn't have all the things that was promised to them, but they believe in God and in what God said, and they have become for us examples. They're witnesses of, they testify to the fact that God is pleased with those who trust him. It could be that. Or it could be, on the other hand, that these witnesses are witnesses because they're witnessing something. Like, like they're onlookers. They're spectators. They, they, are, they are witnessing or watching something happen in action. Could be one or two of those things. So which is it? What's the, what does the writer mean here? What kind of witnesses are they? Well. I think if we remember that the purpose here of this image is to encourage us, right? The writer is telling us here about something that we have, and he presents it to us as a reason to obey the exhortations. I think that these, the cloud of witnesses are both kinds of witnesses. So hang with me, okay? The, the great cloud of witnesses, the stadium full, right? We've got this image in our heads. It's a crowd of onlookers. They, they are spectators. But they're not just any spectators. They are watching a game, as it were, that they've played before and won. So this is gonna, I want to kind of bend the image here a little bit. But imagine that the sold-out stadium... Each night of the World Series, game two last night, it's going to be a great series, okay? Imagine that these, the sold-out stadiums for each of these games of the World Series, imagine that the stadium is full, not of just fans, but of past World Series champions. 40,000 people in these stadiums, shoulder to shoulder, and they're watching the World Series, having played in a World Series before and won it. They're in the stands now watching this game with a World Series ring on their fingers. That's, that's what verse 1 is, is getting at here. The stadium is full. There's a cloud of witnesses. They're onlookers that are surrounding us. But these onlookers are the past saints that we read about in chapter 11. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and the 18 others mentioned at the end of this chapter. And there are two things that we know about the list in chapter 11. 
First, we know that list is not exhaustive. There are other Old Testament saints that the writer could have mentioned but didn't. And secondly, the writer, toward the end of chapter 11, he cites examples of saints outside the Old Testament canon, just part of Jewish history, which I think means that we as Christians, we have license to add to the list here of who might make up this cloud of witnesses. So in our imaginations, I think we can include in this cloud of witnesses all the saints throughout church history, throughout redemptive history, all the saints who have died in faith. So we have all those mentioned in chapter 11, and then think everyone from Peter and Paul and John and Mary to Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Athanasius and Chrysostom and Augustine and Aquinas and Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Owen and Edwards and Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon and Corey Ten Boone and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller and think of the think of your Christian family members who have passed away. Wednesday, coming up, Wednesday, kids, is All Saints Day, all right? So this is a good time to think about all the saints, right? Think about all the saints, all the saints throughout redemptive history, millions, millions of faithful Christians whose names you do not know, but who all died in faith. This is, the word for this is the church victorious. All the saints who have died in faith, all of them now make up this cloud of witnesses. They are part of this stadium full of witnesses, and they have been where we are. They have finished their race as champions, and now they are watching us. And that's meant to encourage us. Therefore, the writer says, since, with this image, since that's the case, since that's what's going on right now, he tells us here to run. The context, what do we do? We run with endurance. That's, this is the first point. Now, we're coming here to these exhortations, three verbs. Run with endurance is the first one. Look at that last line in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. You guys see that in verse 1? Now, let, let us run here. That, that's the main verb of the passage, okay? That's the main thing to see. The, the, that's the main action that we're called to do. And really, if, we, if we're tracking with Hebrews, this is just another way to repeat the same exhortation that's been going on over and over in this book. Don't stop believing, right? Keep, keep going in the life of faith. Endure in faith. He's just saying the same thing again. But now he drops that exhortation in a sports metaphor. He's talking about, this is marathon running, right? This, he, he, endurance running is what he has in mind. So not only are we surrounded by this packed out stadium of witnesses, but because of that, since that is the case, the writer exhorts us now to lead the life of faith like an endurance Runners. The main point, we're going to come back to this main point, but in order to understand the running, 
we need to see the two other verbs in the passage because they explain it. Okay, these two verbs are going to give us more details to the kind of running this is. We run laying aside and looking to Jesus. Now, here's the second point in the sermon. We lay aside what gets in the way. You can see this in the verse. Look at the second part of verse 1. Verse 1 again, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us be laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So this is still an endurance running metaphor. And I know we have some runners in this church. Like we got, we have some, if you guys didn't know, we have some extreme runners in this church. Like a hundred mile runners are in this church. And so this is going to be easy for them to understand this. But I think, I think we can intuit. I think if we don't run, I, like I don't run, but I can understand, right, what is being said here. If you're going to be running a long distance, you only bring with you what is necessary to complete the run. That's not controversial, right? We, we understand that. The, if you're going to run a long, a long race, the mission is to finish the run. The mission is to finish the race. That's, that's the singular focus here. And so what you do to prepare for this race, or even as you're running the race, is you do an audit of your entire person, head to feet, you, you think about your whole body, and everything becomes scrutinized by the question, will this help me finish the race that is in front of me? You ask that question, okay? And as you examine yourself and your gear, whatever does not help me run, help you run, is considered a deterrent. It's a distraction. It's considered a weight. And so, without question, you lay the weights aside. And it, 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 it may not be a bad thing that you lay aside. I mean, it could be, it could be like my, it could be my briefcase. It could, it could be my, my briefcase with my computer and my notebooks and my Pilot G2.38 black ink pens and my Z-bright highlighters with the fluorescent pigment ink that won't bleed through the page. It could be all kinds of good things like this, right? But the question is, does it help me run? If the main action is running and these things don't help me run, then I get them out of the way. Of course. We lay weights aside. We drop the weights for the task of running. And also, we lay sin aside. We lay sin aside. And there's a question about this, what this is here, because notice that every weight and the sin that clings closely, they're, they're kind of side, they're side by side. And so the question on this verse is, 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 is the idea of sin here, is it defining every weight? Or is the writer talking about something separate? Are these the same thing, or are these separate things? Now, I, I'm inclined to think that there's definitely overlap between the two, but I think sin here is something different, okay? The writer is thinking of something different. Now, objectively, objectively, when it comes to, to all of us and sin, sin does damage. It ensnares us. 
but there's a, a fascinating adjective here that, it, that describes sin. The writer calls it closely clinging sin, or depending on your English translation, easily ensnaring sin. That's describing sin. Closely clinging, easily ensnaring. The image is that you're encircled by something, right? Uh, so so imagine, imagine that you're outside and it's, and it's muddy, all right? We had a lot of rain this week. You could probably think this way. Imagine you're outside and it's muddy. And imagine that you have like a muddy circle all around you. And whichever direction you try to go, you have to be careful not to step in the mud. All right, can you imagine that? Got like a little mud circle around you. Now, all sin is objective in that it's moral rebellion against God. It's wrong. But implied here is that we each might have our own muddy circle. Some sins might ensnare me more easily than they do you or vice versa. Years ago, the word that I learned for this concept was besetting sin. Anybody ever heard that phrase before, besetting sin? A few of us? Okay, I just want to, like, just for a minute here, if, if you are, are not a Christian, you probably are not going to understand what I'm about to say. Okay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Keep, keep coming. And I realize there's sometimes that I say things or we do things that don't really make sense. This is one of those times, okay? This is not going to make sense. But hang with me here. I'm going to try to explain this. But I remember the first time I heard someone say this phrase, besetting sin. It was my first year, my freshman year of college, second semester, and I heard the word. I didn't know what it meant. I, had, I did not know what the phrase meant. I had transferred from one school to this different school, and this new school that I was at was a really strong Christian school, and there were some super solid Christian guys, and they took discipleship very seriously. And I was in a group with these guys, and they were talking about life and faith, and one of these guys in that group mentioned the word besetting sin. I didn't know what he meant. And so what do you do if you're with a group of people, and they say a word, you don't know what it means. I said nothing and Googled it later, okay? <laughs> and I remember doing I remember looking it up. And I, I, I read that the definition of besetting was something like persistently threatening. And I thought, persistently threatening sin. I, I got some of those. I, looking back, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this discovery changed my life. Because this, the, the concept of a besetting sin, a closely clinging sin, a easily ensnaring sin, it, it led me to dig down deep into the root sins of my life. Not just the outward behaviors, not just the appearances but to get down deep into the mostly unseen parts. And when you do that, you begin to realize that, you know, we're all wired with particular weaknesses and, and we have particular vulnerabilities. And I begin to understand that my besetting sins at root come back to two things, pride and unbelief. My pride 
is thinking that I can do something apart from God. My unbelief is thinking that I must do something apart from God. And, and together, they're, they're vicious. And, and they, can, they can break out and be expressed in all kinds of different ways. They look different ways at different times, but because they're besetting, because they're clingy, because they're entangling, th these things have followed me around for about 20 years. You guys ever seen a cartoon where there's like a character? You know, you've seen this. And there's like a single rain cloud that like follows the character around. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. So this is like that, except it's not a cloud. It's like, it's like a muddy circle. And it just follows you around everywhere you go. Besetting sins are, are like that. I've got my own mud circle, and you've got your own mud circle. And we have to be careful not to step in the mud, because everywhere we go, it's never too far away. Does this make sense? I, a couple of weeks ago, I went to my, my oldest daughter's volleyball game, okay? Go Lions. Right. And we, I went to the volleyball game, and it was, it was an away game, and I'd never been to this gym before, but I walked in, and, you know, it's one of those things where, like, our, our fans were the far side of the gym. And so I had to walk in and walk around the gym past, you know, this one set of fans to find a seat. So I found a seat. I sat down, and I'm just enjoying the game. And I happened, as I was looking, I happened to see some mud had been tracked in the gym. Right? Kind of like in this, you know, on the way. And this is a true story. I saw the mud, the dirt. It's like dark, this is obvious dirt. I saw this dirt and I thought, some idiot has tracked mud in the gym. No, okay. Well, I keep watching the game and a little bit later, I, I, I looked down. I had mud all over my boots. You are the man. It was one of those, I was, I was the idiot that I was judging, and this is a true story. You can have, we have some witnesses here who saw it. And, and here, here's the thing, here's the thing with that. Some of us right now, if we were to metaphorically look down in our shoes, we would have mud all over them. This is, this is the reason while we have the time of confession earlier in our service, right? It's never, it's never a wrong time to confess your sins. So we, 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 we've done it earlier, but I want, to just, in this, I want us just to do this for a second. I want us to take a look at our shoes again, okay? Metaphorical shoes here. Check your heart for a minute. I didn't, when I, I didn't even see any mud when I went to this volleyball game. I don't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't know where it came from. But also, like, I wasn't watching out for it. I wasn't looking out for mud, and I found it all over my shoes. And so I, I, want, I want you to think for a second. Have you stepped in mud? And that mud that you may have stepped in, or you can say that, that mud that persistently threatens you to step in. It's going to keep you from running the race. You, you can't run with mud caked on your shoes. You can't. 
Okay, just you, you, you will not, you will not do it. You won't run. It doesn't work. If you try to run with mud caked on your shoes, you will not make it. You must lay it aside. This is not enough. You must lay it aside. And so I want to, in this moment, do, I want to ask you to do that. Check your shoes, check your heart, throw off the sins that entangle you and encircle you. And now go back to this image of weights. So sin is one thing, weights are another. And this is where we begin to go next level, okay? We stop the sin, of course, but now I want you to ask, what in my life, anything, what in my life is in the way of my running with endurance? Take an inventory of your life, okay? Now, I mean this right now. I mean this especially for the younger people in this room and for the older people in this room and for all the people in between, okay? I'm talking to you, okay? (laughs) Got it? Take an inventory of your life. Think, are all of the various things in my life encouraging my faith or distracting my faith? Is it helping you run or is it hurting you to run? And if it's hurting you, if it's distracting you, if it's deterring you, if it's weighing you down while you're you're trying to run, why, why do you hold on to it? Ask it, why? Why are you holding on to it? Lay it aside. Because, okay, you want to run, right? That's the, you want to run. We're trying to run with endurance here. We're trying to live the life of faith. We want to endure in faith, which means lay aside whatever gets in the way. That's, that's easy. Do it. You see that here in Hebrews 12, 1. Here's the, here's the third thing. Um, running with endurance, it means we lay aside what gets in the way. It also means we look to Jesus. This is verse, this is verse 2, straightforward. We run with endurance, the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And right away, that word there for looking, it means an intense kind of looking. It's the same word that's used to talk about Moses in chapter 11, verse 26, when the writer tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's not a casual looking, okay? It means to fix your eyes on something. And you may have an English translation that actually translates the word that way, fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is a resolute singular focus on Jesus. And the writer here, I love this, he says Jesus on purpose. There's all kinds of titles for Jesus that he could have used here. But like he has done 11 other times in this book, he just says Jesus. I think it's because he wants us to think of the real person, Jesus, the the man who has lived here in our shoes, who was and is God in the flesh, true God in actual flesh, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Man, that phrase, the founder and perfecter of our faith in verse 2, this is 
a super important description that's meant to tie together all of chapter 11. Other ways that you could say it is founder and finisher of our faith, or pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The idea is that Jesus is the one who starts it and ends it. Starts and ends what? Our faith. And when the writer says our faith here, he's talking about the faith that we share with these Old Testament saints of chapter 11, the whole cloud of witnesses who are packing out this stadium in verse 1. And if Jesus is the one who founded and finishes our faith, then it means that Jesus is the ultimate example that we follow. All the examples of chapter 11 now culminate in the example of Jesus. We recall all the examples of those who have come before us in order to fix our eyes on the example of Jesus. This is like when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We look to the examples of others to know the example of Christ. And we can read all about the life and example of Jesus in the Gospels. But here in these verses, it's interesting, I love this. The, the writer of Hebrews, he spells out what he means here in particular. We look to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who, because of one great reality, there are three actions that he does, okay? Look at this verse two, look at this. For the joy set before him, that's the great reality, three things. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The humiliation and exaltation of Jesus are explained here as being actions compelled by one thing, joy. We talk a lot about joy around here at this church. I don't know what you think about joy, but if there were ever a verse in the Bible, right, that raises the stakes on the meaning of joy is Hebrews 12, 2. It's, it's this verse right here. Jesus had joy set before him. <laughs> and we've already seen this in the examples of faith in chapter 11. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they all endured suffering in faith because they embraced something better in their future. Moses fixed his eyes on the reward. And when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the reward that Moses looked to was ultimately the reward of being with Jesus himself. But if that's our reward, if the joy set before us is being with Jesus, then what was the joy set before Jesus? That's the question. What was the joy set before Jesus? And I want to encourage you all to talk to Pastor David Mathis about this, okay? He wrote about this in the article that was sent out on Friday, and uh, it is just such a rich topic, and he loves talking about it. So talk to him about this. But he said in that article, if you can go back and read it if you hadn't, he talks about how the joy of Jesus is multifaceted. It's not just one thing, but the Bible tells us at least a few things about the joy of Jesus. The joy of Jesus is the glory of his Father. It's his victory over the devil. It's the saving of his people. And Jesus had joy in his being seated at the Father's right hand. He has joy in his being seated at the Father's right hand. And that's the last description here in verse 2. 
I think this, I think this idea, this, 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 this truth of the joy of Jesus being seated at his Father's right hand, that brings it all together, the joy of Jesus. We look to Jesus who, for joy, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And David explained that this being seated is both about Jesus' personal honor and his nearness to the Father. Jesus is glorified and radiant, and he is with his Father, in fellowship with his Father. And there's joy in that. And at the same time, I want to add or clarify or underline that the joy of being seated where Jesus is now, that honor and that nearness that Jesus enjoys is the joy of consummation. It's the joy of a finished task, finished work. Remember, that's how the book of Hebrews begins. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is doing that now. Jesus is seated there now, and his being seated there on this side of the cross is together and, and, and parallel to the joy that was set before him. So imagine it like this, okay? Joy set before him, Jesus, joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you, do you see that? That is the joy. From where he is seated right now, in his joy, Jesus looks over all that he has done, and he's happy with it. He's satisfied with it. In fact, everything that is happening right now by the work of his spirit, which he superintends, it is the application of his joy. It's all from joy and for joy. I think this is so important for us at the level of our imaginations. It means that when we look to Jesus, when we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are not looking at a nervous Jesus. Jesus is not wringing his hands in worry about us. Jesus is not looking at us crossing his fingers in hopes that things are going to work out. That's not what he's doing. Jesus looks over all that he has done in joy, and it is that joy that we're running to. It is that joy of Jesus that we're running toward, even if it means we do this, and it does. See? You get that? We got to go like that. And, and and what matters, what we're called to in this area now, what we're called to here is to run. Run. That's the main verb again. That's what we're doing now. Jesus is seated there now. The cloud of witnesses are watching us now. And now for us, what do we do? We run now with endurance. When it comes to the life of faith, church, we are not spectators yet, okay? We're, we are not onlookers. We, we are in the game, as it were. 
We're on the field, right? All of us right now in this room, if you can hear what I'm saying, we are on the field and we are called to run. And so we run. We have the great examples of faith behind us in the past and we have the joy of Jesus as our future. And what does God want us to do today? He wants us to run. So that's my exhortation to you, run. With faithful saints in the past, with Jesus and his joy ahead of us, run, run, run. Laying aside every sin and weight, looking to Jesus, let us run with endurance the race of faith that is set before us. And that's what brings us to this table. As we run with endurance, every week as runners, we come together and at this table, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Jesus died for us to save us, to make us new, to bring us home. And here at this table, we give him thanks for that. And so this morning, if you would do that, if, if you would give Jesus thanks, if you trust in him, if you have put your faith in him, if you are today running the race of faith with endurance, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. Just hold it. I'll come back up. We're going to eat it all together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.